Okay, so we're going to be looking at biblical principles of leadership, principles of biblical leadership. We're going to be looking at three particular individuals to fashion or look at for examples to, to fashion our lives after. One of those individuals is David. They're all from the Old Testament. The other one is Samuel. And the third one, the one we're going to look at this morning, might be a surprise. I would call it the Saul surprise, is going to be Saul. Saul gives us an example of biblical leadership. And I was really taken by this. I actually thought that I was going to use Saul in contrast to true biblical leadership until I began to read his story. And we can open up there to his story in 1 Samuel chapter 10. 1 Samuel chapter 10, and we're going to begin here with verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 1. It says here, 1 Samuel 10 verse 1, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? So here we see the beginning of Saul's leadership abilities. Now the reason why I think Saul is such a commanding example for us as a principle or revealing the principles of leadership is because there's such a contrast for us between what Saul was under the anointing of God and what he wasn't when he rejected that anointing. In other words, we see in our memory and in our recognition of Saul, we see a man who turned away from the Lord, who uh, misled the people, who did some terrible things. And that is Saul without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And Saul is us without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And then we see a Saul who was anointed with the Holy Spirit, and he did some incredible things. God used him in a mighty way, in a powerful way. And that is us, with the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It, it really is an example of righteousness by faith. It really is an example of what we need as we wake up in the morning, each and every morning, as we begin our work day, our work week, our lives. It, it is an example of what we need we need the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit each and every day. It's also an example of how righteousness by faith works. Righteousness by faith is not something that takes months and years, even days. Righteousness by faith is a moment-by-moment -moment experience. It happens in the now, today, this morning, right here, presently. It is not an experience that's based on what you did yesterday or last year or the generations of your inheritance or heritage in Adventism. It's not an experience that's based on anything that you have done, but it is completely and totally dependent on the anointing of the Spirit of God. The anointing of God's Spirit, the presence of God in your heart, in your life, everything depends on that. Righteousness by faith is not reputation. It's not based on the accumulation of good deeds, of of things that you can bring to the Lord and offer to the Lord. Righteousness by faith is based entirely and completely on our dependence on Jesus Christ each and every day. And so Saul gives us that. He delivers that to us in his life, in his experience. We could look at Saul and we could think, ah, I don't even want to go there. I don't even want to spend time there. But there is a rich 
lesson for us in the life and experience of Saul. Notice here in verse 6, as we continue the story, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, Samuel says, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we need? Regardless of what we want, isn't that what we need? To be turned into another man, to be turned into another person. I know that's what I need. I know that in 24 years of marriage, and my wife and I have two children, and we've had numerous pets, that we need to be turned into other people. We need the Spirit of God. Before I got married, I was, by my own standard, perfect. I had attained. Pretty much everything was in order. Everything was in place. Uh, the toilet paper was put on just so, and the toothpaste was squeezed from the bottom, and there was nothing that needed to be rearranged in my home. Then I got married. And I began to realize imperfections in my own self that had passed my notice. When you live by yourself, you don't notice things about yourself that you do when you're married to another person who is different from you, who has different habits from the habits that you have, who, who does some things that may not be totally in harmony with your agenda and with the way you do things. And then, of course, we had children children who remind us of ourselves, the selves that we are so good at covering up and pretending that we have arrived because we're not, you know, we're able to do that. But kids aren't able to do that. They just are who they are. And sometimes they allow us to be who we are. <laughs> my kids bring out myself much more than I'd like to confess, though I am confessing it. You will be turned into another man, verse 7. And let it be, when these signs come to you, that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. I love that. Do as the occasion demands. God is with you. When you are carrying out your impulses, you will be doing what God wants you to do, because you're anointed with God's Spirit, and God is with you. That's really powerful. That's really beautiful when you think about it, because... We often go by a checklist. We often look at the outline of what it is that we're supposed to do, whether it's the protocol of man or whether it's the protocol of inspiration, and we're not always in the moment with God, imbued by His Spirit, anointed by His Spirit, recognizing His voice and doing what it is that God wants us to do, which is, according to this verse what the occasion demands. And sometimes it seems like what the occasion demands is different than what Moses commanded. Moses said that this woman should be, what? Stoned. What do you say? Well, this occasion demands that this woman should not be condemned. The Spirit of God was upon him, and he did as the occasion demanded for God was with him. What a beautiful promise. What a powerful promise that is given to who? To us. To Saul. To us. To the worst of us. To each and every one of us. You shall go down, verse 8, before me to Gilgal, and surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait, wait, till I come to you and show you what to do. Wait. Wait on the Lord. 
Biblical leadership is anointed by God's prophet, changed into another person, affirmed and directed by the spirit of prophecy, Samuel. Biblical leadership waits for the Lord. We wake up in the morning and we wait for the Lord. We wait for the anointing of the Lord. We, we long for, we crave for, we, we ask for, we need the anointing of the Lord. Now, of course, there are many times when we don't do that. We come out of the bed late. We've got to get to work. We've got pressing needs on the schedule, on the agenda, and so we are gone from God's presence. We might pause for a moment, but that's all. We leave Jesus by the bedside, in the home, wherever he is, and we're gone. And the day reveals that fact. We blunder and we fall and we stumble and we pick up and we make all kinds of mistakes. And often that is the beginning of a continual downward motion in our Christian experience. And what we need to remember is that God longs for us to learn the lesson that day that we need him every moment. And that we don't need to somehow wait for the weekend, for the Sabbath, or for an opportunity to come to some kind of convention where we can get things back together with God because, you know, we've messed up. No, we can in the moment, even in the full revelation of our weaknesses and failures, we can ask God for his presence, for his forgiveness, for his power in our lives. Saul never learned that lesson, and continued in that downward spiral. We, we're going to touch on that a little bit later, but the thing that I think is beautiful here is that Saul, at this point in his life, is a type of Christ. That seems hard, that seems difficult, uh, but Jesus was the Messiah. That word means the anointed one. Saul is the anointed one. Saul has been anointed with the Spirit of God. So Saul is a type of Christ here. He reveals the characteristics of Christ. He's imbued with the Spirit of God. He does as the occasion demands. And in doing so, he is in harmony with God. So it was, for Samuel 10:9, when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart. And those signs came to pass that day. We don't have to wait for tomorrow. We don't have to wait for next week. We don't have to wait for some future time when God has promised us the outpoint of the latter rain. It can happen that day, according to the Word of God. It's based on the Word of God. It's not based upon where we are, who we are, or what we are. It's based on God's Word. That is righteousness by faith in the Word of God. Biblical leadership receives a new heart from God, biblical leadership is converted, and God wants that for you each and every day, each and every moment. Then it says in verse 10, And when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet them. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, and he prophesied among them. Anointed, receiving, led by we cannot get enough of the Spirit of God. That's what I'm reading here from the story of Saul. And you know that as you look to the end of his life, that the Spirit of God needs to be saturating our, our entire being. We need to be 
fill to overflowing with God's Spirit. Oh, I get up in the morning, I spend an hour in the Word of God, I spend an hour contemplating the life of Christ, I spend my time in devotions, and then I go on. I've, I've done my due diligence. I've, I've spent that time with the Lord. Now I go on. No, wherever we go, wherever we travel, people that we meet, we need a fresh anointing, we need a fresh imbuing. We need to ask again for the Spirit of God. We are too easily satisfied. That's the Laodicean problem. That's the existence that we experience in society today, at least here in North America. We're too easily satisfied. We're, we're too easily content. We, we just want to live up to the status quo. If we're as good as everyone else, that's okay. But the story of Saul tells us that we're dealing with something that is only conquerable by the Spirit of God, the deep moving of the Spirit of God, the overwhelming presence of God's Spirit, and that something is self. And self, well, self is a formidable enemy. Verse 22, therefore, they inquired of the Lord further, has the man come here yet? They're asking after Saul. They're, they're looking for Saul. They're looking for, now you've got to understand, this is the time in which God's people have gone so far away from him that they're actually seeking a king. That's why Saul has been anointed. Saul has been anointed to be the king in Israel. It wasn't God's will that they would have a king. They had a prophet. That was good enough for God. That's, that's really what he wanted for his people. That's really what he wants for us. But they insisted on being like the other nations, as we often do in so many different ways. And the people being promised a king were asking after this king that God had chosen. God actually chose Saul, chose the king, and the Lord answered, there he is, hidden among the equipment. I think this is interesting because it shows us that biblical leadership often manifests a reluctance to put themselves forward. Now, I don't know if it was the best thing for Saul to be hidden among the equipment, but it does reveal something, doesn't it, about himself at this point. We know that he's imbued with the Spirit of God. We know he's filled with the Spirit of God. We know God has anointed him. The prophet has affirmed him, and yet there he is hiding. There's a reluctance in Saul. He's, he's not pushing himself to the to the front. He's not promoting himself. He's not self-promoting. He's reluctant to put himself forward. I think that's a qualification. I think it's in harmony with what God wants of all of us because what happens, I think, at least in my experience, is that when we are reluctant, God encourages us. And I feel like we need that extra encouragement Sometimes we can question whether or not it's our promotion that is causing things to happen rather than the Spirit of God leading. And so it says in verse 26, Saul also went home to Gibeah, and the valiant men went with him whose hearts God had touched. I like this also because it tells us that, that biblical leadership draws men to follow whose hearts are touched by God. We're not by ourselves. You're not alone. The Bible says there are 7,000. In other words, as you are faithful to God, as you are anointed with His Spirit, as God leads you and blesses you and guides you, He's going to lead others to you. You're going to be connecting with and, and surrounded by others whose heart God has touched. And together, 
you are going to be used in a mighty way to conquer the enemies of God. Verse 27, some of the rebels, there's always going to be those guys, some of the rebels, some of the opposition, some of those who just aren't in harmony with God's will. Now, these aren't rebels in the sense that they're Philistines or from another tribe or enemies. These are part of the church. These are the people that are, that are sitting in the pews and church offices. These are the people right around you. There's just this church militant atmosphere that's taking place here. Even in Saul's time, as it is in our time, there are going to be those who are opposed to God's directive, God's will, God's purpose for you and for others in the church. Some of the rebels said, how can this man save us? How can this man save us? Well, the truth of the matter is he can't. He's simply God's chosen man. There's nothing special about him except that he was exceptionally tall and handsome, but that was about it. Saul didn't have anything special that made him or gave him the ability to do something. And, and sometimes that's what we're looking at. Sometimes our rebellion is based upon our observations of a person, our qualifications of that person. What we think that person can accomplish based upon their pedigree, based upon their education, based upon who they are, where they come from, or what we think they can do. And so we rebel against God's plan, against God's design, against God's purpose. They said, what can this man do? How, how can this man save us? So they despised him, and, and they brought him no presence. Obviously here there was this, this tradition, let's say, that, that if someone is elected to such an office as this, if someone is called to such an office as this, you would bring them something that would in some way indicate that you were supportive of their calling. Uh, maybe you just wanted to write them a card or a little note or or send them a little text message and say, hey, so glad that you know, you're, you're elected to this office and we know God is going to bless you. But they shunned him. They ignored him. But he, it says in verse 27, and this is really the key reason why I included this verse because I think it's so powerful, but he, it says, held his peace. That's Saul, doing as the occasion demands, under the Spirit of God, anointed by God's Spirit, led by his prophet, he held his peace. Now later on, Saul is going to go so far as to kill priests. He's going to be willing to even kill his son in order to maintain his prestige, his image. But here, under the Spirit of God, Saul is a different man than that. And it says that even those who despise him, those who he had reason to deal with harshly or severely, he doesn't respond. He holds his peace. He is very much here like Jesus. He's very much here like Christ. He is very much here revealing the spirit of Christ. He's turning the other cheek. He's going the extra mile. He's not allowing the criticism, the sharp criticism, and opposition of the rebels, the rebels against God, not him, of course, to deter him or to cause him to lose his Christ-likeness or his focus on mission or his humility. He's walking very closely with the Lord and turning a deaf ear to those who refuse to lend support or affirmation. Well, there's a lot there so far, isn't there, for all of us as biblical leaders? But the story goes much further than this. It actually now gets into some nitty-gritty action, some, some very practical applications, but we really can't go here 
yet, until we know, until we recognize, until we understand and affirm what God wants for us. Again, it doesn't matter who we are or where we came from. It doesn't matter how bad of a person or a heart we have. That's not the issue. That's why this story is so compelling. It's so beautiful. It's so powerful, the story of Saul. That's why I'm so thankful that it's here. Of course, the New Testament talks about another Saul that tells us the very thing that we're being told in this story. It reminds me of the parable of the two sons. You know, the first one who said, I go and didn't go, and the second one who says, I'm not going, and then he went. The two Sauls. It seems like the second Saul picks up where the first Saul left off, and he returns to where the first Saul began. And we have this full circle with the Old and the New Testament stories of these two Sauls. And that's really where we are. We are where Saul went, or where he was, depending on which Saul we're talking about, in full need of the Holy Spirit to anoint us, to bless us, to be with us. I know that, and you know that. Before we get to what God does through Saul, we need to recognize our need, our dependence on God, as was revealed in the life of Saul. I think we do to some degree recognize that, but at the same time, I know it's difficult for me. Sometimes, in my experience, God allows me to stumble and fall so that I can realize my full need of Him. Sometimes the accomplishments are a greater danger for me than anything else. Paul talks about that in Philippians chapter 2. He talks about how we need to forget those things which are behind, and, and he's talking about his pedigree there. He's talking about the fact that he is a Jew of the Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, born of the tribe of Benjamin. Hmm. That he was blameless, he was a Pharisee. He's talking about all of the things that he had accomplished, and he says in the context, I counted them rubbish, dung, is what the King James says. The he, Greek there actually indicates that, that he considered them damaging. That, that they were damaging to him. That, that they actually got in the way of his full reliance upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers once said that our greatest challenge, our greatest enemy, if you will, to the love of Christ to the righteousness of Christ, are our works for Christ. What we do, what we offer in obedience to Christ, many times challenges our complete dependence on Jesus Christ, on His righteousness. I know when I first came to Jesus, I was fully dependent on Him because I had nothing to offer Him. Nothing. I was a sinner all the way down at the very bottom. But as I began to keep the seventh-day Sabbath and as I began to follow the principles of the health message, and as I began to give him my tithe, and as I, I began to, to, to do Bible studies and to share and to grow in the Lord, well, week by week and month by month, there were things that I could point to and say, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I have actually done a few things for God. And that's our danger. And so there are times when God reminds us. There are times when 
we fall flat on our faces. There are times when we wake up in the morning and everything goes wrong. We think, or we thought, that we had overcome all of that. We thought we were past that. We thought that that, that was a, a, a failure of the distant past. And there it is, right there, right in our face. And we feel absolutely and completely hopeless and lost. It's as though we never were converted. And it's simply a reminder. Don't lose heart. Don't be overwhelmed. Just lose pedigree. Just lose dependence on that stuff that you've done. Let go of it. And again, grasp fully that green cord. Take a hold of that faith. The faith that does not make facts, but the faith that accepts the facts. Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That is our title to heaven. That is our fitness for heaven. And our faith takes hold of that. It doesn't make that a reality. That is a reality. That is the reality. That is our salvation. That is righteousness by faith. And faith takes hold of that, and faith says, yes, that's it. I accept that. And as we do that, it transforms us. We live for Jesus now. What else can we do? We tried everything else. Nothing else works. Sometimes we're reminded of that. Saul reminds me of that. It also reminds me of what God does when we take hold of that. 1 Samuel chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. 1 Samuel 11, beginning with verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh, Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach upon all Israel. Verse 3, Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there be no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah, came to Gibeah, of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. It's a good place for us to be right here because this tells us where we are. We are threatened by an enemy. The enemy's name here is Nahash. The word means serpent or snake. This is a symbol, of course, of you-know-who. And he is threatened to destroy us. The threat is real. It's a reality. And someone came up with an idea. The idea is, let's make a covenant with him. Not a good idea. You're going to do that, you're going to lose your right eye. Not a good thing to lose. You see, the right eye was critical, was, was, was vital in order to fight, in order to war. Back then, you know, you had a shield and a sword. And if you were wielding that shield, like most were, with your left hand, if you were protecting yourself, you needed your right eye. You needed to be able to see beyond that shield. If you only had a left eye, you're going to have to pull that shield over just a little bit more and be more defenseless. If you were yielding a bow and an arrow, like most people were, and you wanted to shoot that arrow, you were going to need your right eye. Nahash knew what he was doing. He understood 
that he was not only humiliating, but he was taking away the threat, the fighting threat of the fighting force. All the men in, in, in the city were to lose their right eye. They were not going to be a threat anymore to him. So someone else came up with another idea. Maybe someone can save us. Maybe the anointed, maybe there's someone anointed that can save us. We surely can't save ourselves. Praise God. Praise God. It's so powerful to realize that in the context of God anointing somebody, that there's a revelation at the same time of our need of that somebody that's been anointed. A revelation. I think, I, I, re I read the story a few times and I thought, why didn't they just fight? Why didn't they just, why didn't they just put up their dukes? Well, the illustration is powerful, really, when you think about it. And up until this time, there was no one to save them. There was no one to, to help them because all the people who heard the message wept. They wept and they wept and they wept. It reminds me of Revelation chapter 5, you know, where John sees this throne room and, and he sees someone sitting on the throne and right next to that someone is a scroll that's written on the inside and the outside and we're told that, that scroll represents the history of the world and there's no more room for any more writing. It's written on the inside and the outside, it's sealed up with seven seals and we're told in the context of Revelation 5 that nobody in heaven or earth or under the earth, that no man can take the scroll and open it. And what does John do when he hears that? He weeps uncontrollably he weeps. Why is he weeping? Because he knows that that history records your life and my life. And that, that history can be summed up with the words, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's our history. Sealed up. Unchangeable. Immovable. We're destined to death. And then John hears the good news. Seven words making up, seven letters making up two words. Weep not. Weep not. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not a commandment, but definitely the, the secret of success. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has prevailed where we have failed. And this is the message that we find right here. The, the men of Jabesh Gilead were in a good place. They were really in a good place. They were. Because they had come to the realization that they couldn't save themselves. They needed help, and they knew it. Do you know that? See, many today, even people in church, don't know what the men of Jabesh Gilead knew. They don't really know that they need help, that they need salvation, that they need to be rescued from the righteous judgment of God, that they need what they can never procure or offer, that they need a righteousness that is so perfect that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees couldn't touch it, couldn't come close to it. 
Many people today think they can do it. They can do it. But in another way, they were in a bad place, weren't they? They knew they needed a Savior. They knew that, but they didn't know if there was one. They didn't know. They said, give us seven days and we'll send out a message and we'll see if there's anybody. We don't know if there's anybody, but we know there's somebody, don't we? Don't we know there's somebody? You see, there are men and women in this world. There are men and women that are coming into your offices. There are men and women that you are coming in contact with in your workplace. There are men and women that you're rubbing shoulders with. There are, there are older people and younger people, children and grandparents who don't know. They don't know that someone has been anointed to save them. They don't know that they have a savior. And that's why we're here. That's why we're on this planet. That's why we're on planet Earth. That's our mission. That's our ministry. It's, it's outlined in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 as the ministry of reconciliation. It's, we're called their ambassadors for Christ, the, the highest ranking official from one government to the next. And God has called us to, to minister to those people by not counting their sins against them. We come in contact with, with perhaps grumpy, impatient, unlikely people. People that we're not sure we can even handle for the day. We just like somebody else to take care of them or for them to go away quickly. And these are the very people that God has brought right into your pathway. Not only because they rub you the wrong way, which is really good for character development, <laughs> but also because the worse they are, the greater the contrast is going to be between them and the Spirit of God in you. And the more, perhaps, potential they have to realizing their great need and the answer that you can be a channel to offer to them. Now it says in verse 5, there was Saul coming up behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? Why are the people weeping? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. That's 1 Samuel 11, verse 5. I love this because this tells me that biblical leadership is faithful in the little things. Everyone wants to be in the limelight, in the spotlight. Everyone wants to be up front. Everyone wants to be a preacher. Everyone wants to be a leader. Well, we're all leaders. We're all leaders. We're leaders in big things and little things. And right now, Saul was a leader in little things. He was the leader of the flock. He was the leader of the herd. He was leading the goats or the lambs or whatever they were. He was leading them. He was a leader. And he was faithful in that leadership. And as he was faithful in that leadership, God called him to something greater. That's the way God called David, you remember. All of David's brothers were in line and waiting to be anointed. They were waiting to get their, their, their opportunity to be somebodies, to do something great for God. David was out minding the flock. He was out taking care of developing his leadership skills. You remember that, right? Developing leadership skills. So was Saul. And the second thing that I love about this is that Saul, biblical leadership, inquires about the welfare of others, especially, especially when they're troubled. That can be difficult for me. 
as a male with my wife when she's crying. I have a hard time with that sometimes. I'm not sure what to do with tears. <laughs> it can be difficult for us to know what to do when people begin to break down. I think women know what to do almost naturally sometimes, most of the time perhaps. It seems like my wife does anyway. An arm, a sympathetic word, empathetic tears. But me, I'm not sure. It scares me. I want to back away. My wife has said to me on several occasions, I won't tell you how many, Don't you know what to do? <laughs> oh, I should. I ought to. I ought to know what to do in the moment. I guess I have at times been anointed with the Spirit of God and done the right thing. It is so vitally important for us to be in the right place at the right time, doing the little things that God wants us to do and not bothered with the, the limelight, the spotlight, and the big things. Just let them go. They're insignificant. It's the little things that matter, that count. The humility of being faithful to God in those little things can make all the difference. It's not going to be necessarily the meetings right here that are going to bless you this weekend, the speakers. Some of these meetings are going to be quite boring. This one might be. But it's going to be those little encounters, those little connections, the opportunities that you have to minister to one another, to pray together and to, to inquire about life and trials and joys and struggles, to just, to just meet those needs on that level, on those interactive levels. Those are what make the difference in church, in home, in community, in, in fellowship, in, in conventions, in, in Amen, in ASI, in GYC. That's why people go. That's where the blessings are. The blessings are there for all of us to give and to receive on that level, regardless of who's speaking and how powerful the sermon was or wasn't. It's for us, each one of us, to lead that little herd, that little flock, those people that God is engaging us with, directing us to. And the Spirit of God, verse 6, came upon Saul. I love this part. I just wanted to get to this part. I don't want to leave us this morning in the last eight minutes that we have together without focusing on this part. The Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. There are times when I like to be angry. I have to admit it. I don't know if it's my inheritance, Irish on my mother's side, or just the fact that I get mad sometimes and would love to justify it. But here is a case for justified righteous indignation. Here is a situation where Saul, imbued with the Spirit of God, manifests anger over the injustice that is being imposed upon the people of Jabez Gilead. 
they're going to have their right eyes pulled out. When the Spirit of God came upon Saul, it was time for Saul to, to act, to do something. The Spirit of God is still available. The Spirit of God is still ready to arouse us to do something. I think at times we allow all of our energy to be vented, to, to, be, to be used up in talking about what we would do or should do or could do. And then we end up doing nothing because it just all kind of goes out of us. Talk, 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 talk. We're so mad and we're so upset, but we don't do anything. <laughs> we don't do anything. I found that sometimes it's better just to be quiet and just let all of that just build. Just, just keep it right there. Keep it inside, keep it inside, keep it inside. And then to do something, to actually do something. Communication can be good, it can be powerful. Saul actually did communicate. Initially, verse 7 says, so he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hands of the messengers, saying, whosoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so shall it be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. Not exactly a Twitter feed. I don't see us Facebooking in this manner today, but it was nonetheless a vital mode of communication, an extreme mode of communication, perhaps. And some of us might think that Facebook is extreme or Twitter is extreme. I have a Facebook account. My daughter set it up for me. I don't know exactly how to use it, but I just post quotes up there all the time. I have a Twitter account. Someone else set that up for me. I kind of know how to use that, but mainly I just post quotes up there all the time. I want to do something. I want to communicate something, something that isn't me, something that is inspired, something that I believe can be powerful and can impact the lives and hearts of people, whoever they are, out there, who use that form of communication on a regular basis. I'd like to impact their hearts somehow. I don't want to just sit around talking about whatever to my wife or to the wall. I want to be imbued with the Spirit of God. I want to study His Word and, and listen to His prophets, and I want to share whatever it is that God is, is communicating to me. Whatever it is that's a help to me and a blessing to me, I want to share it with others. Saul wanted to do something, and sometimes that means utilizing extreme methods of communication when necessary. Verse 9, And they said to the messengers who came, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. I love that. You shall have help. You shall have help. You shall have help. Just say that over and over again to yourself. You shall have help. <laughs> you shall. Then... The messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were what? They were glad. I've got three minutes left. I need to move through this last part quickly. 
So it was on the next day, verse 11, that Saul put the people in three companies. Biblical leadership brings glad tidings, hope for those who are facing evil, but biblical leadership is also organized. He just didn't run down there and say, well, God's going to use me. I'm just going to believe that he's going to do some miracle. He organized people together into groups, into companies. He had a plan, and he followed that plan. Verse 12, and the people said to Samuel, after the great rescue takes place, after it's, it's, it's all over, after God delivers, so I've got to close up now in the way that only he can. The people said to Samuel, who is, who is he? Who are those people that said, Saul shall reign over us? Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men here, and we're going to put them to death. Now, as we close this up, I want you to think about this, because this to me is really powerful. In the context of this great victory, this, this victory that comes as, as Saul is used by God as a channel to bring glad tidings of deliverance, as as only God can do, only God can deliver. As the victory is consummated, as, as the conclusion comes, as the day is won, as the sun is setting, as, it, it, as the dust settles, some of the men say, who are those men that refused to bring presents to Saul, that refused to recognize him, that were, that were speaking critically against him, that were opposed to, to his eldership, to his anointing, to his being put into this position? Who are those men? Bring them here. Let's, let's put them in their place. And what does Saul say? I love this. Saul says, verse 13, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Just leave you with this closing thought. Biblical leadership has no desire to seek personal revenge because it recognizes that God is the one that deserves all the credit for everything, that God has accomplished something great. And you know, when you, when you revel in that, when you bask in that, when you rejoice in that, when you are living in what God is doing, doesn't matter what other people say, what other people do, what other people think. I mean, in a, in a negative sense, of course. It matters in every other way, but you don't take it personally. It's not about you anymore. You have been lost sight of, and the whole focus now is Jesus. It's all about God. It's all about His work and His power and what He wants to accomplish through you and in spite of you. We'll continue our study tomorrow with Samuel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we just want to thank you again this morning for these insights you've given us from the life of Saul. It is a powerful lesson for us as we think about how his life ended. and We recognize the repeat of that same history and even in Adventism, those who started well and, and were deterred perhaps by the opposition of others. And Father, we don't want that to be our record, our history. We want to learn from the lessons of the life of Saul that our dependence is upon you, not upon ourselves, and that your anointing can keep us and bless us and direct us and 
fill us and use us and humble us. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the picture that we have of Jesus in the life of Saul. Allow that picture to be foremost in our hearts, in our thoughts today. Hour by hour, we pray in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.